Greetings, dear listeners. We invited Oliver Traldi onto the pod this week. Oliver is an engaging writer and thinker, a doctoral philosophy student at the University of Notre Dame, a writing fellow at Jonathan Haidt's Heterodox Academy, and someone you've probably encountered on social media. His new article, With All Due Respect to the Experts, published by American Compass, caught our attention. The problems with technocracy are something that has occupied our attention on this pod for a while, and Oliver's contribution to the debate struck us as very important. We start out talking about crime, public health, and the difficulty of pinpointing truth and fact in a pluralistic democratic society. What is the role of experts, really? Then, in the bonus episode, for paying members only, we get deeper into the question of elites and the moral qualities required for effective leadership. As always, to get access to the full episode, please become a paying member at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. Thanks for your support. On to the show. So I don't know, Shadi, let's start with what's on your mind. That's always more interesting. As I was telling <laughs> Oliver, I'm, I'm in Albania. Like, I don't know if expertise is on my mind. Well, maybe in some ways, but uh, I don't know. You're you're more you're more in the shit, the American shit right now. So uh, I guess you know what's on my mind. Go on. Crime. Crime. That's true. Mm-hmm. Crime is on. Your I mind. feel like I'm being red pilled in real time. <laughs> You've always been red pilled. You're just discovering. If it's getting the fact. worse, man. I have to be. Re- I have to be careful. Yeah. Because I. Because I, I don't. I don't want. I mean. And then you have all these people online who are telling me that I should consider voting for a different party if I'm so bothered by the Democrats. Like Elon Musk, wanna, maybe. <laughs> like Elon Musk, exactly. But um, yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, crime is quite relevant at precisely this moment as we speak and as we're recording this episode because the progressive district attorney of San Francisco, very progressive. In fact, um, per, uh, you know, he was also, he's controversial because his parents were in the, the weather right. underground the weather terrorist underground, group, right. Chesa Boudin, and he was just successfully recalled. So he will no longer be the city's chief prosecutor. So that's obviously a big deal and has potentially repercussions well beyond, but it also gets to just a broader question of how we assess reality, because one of the ongoing debates when it comes to crime in major cities, is is crime actually rising? And you'd think that that could be numerically assessed, that there are rates and there are available statistics. But as it turns out, American observers cannot agree on whether or to what extent crime is rising in cities like San Francisco, New York City, Chicago, and Philadelphia. So it's a very good tie-in to the topic of our conversation, or at least one of the topics of our conversation, because, and I'm not just saying this, um, so you guys will hear another voice, um, Oliver Traldi, in a moment, but (laughs) if he decides to speak. (laughs) Hi, Oliver. Hey, how's it going? Good to be on. Welcome. So, you know, I'm not just saying this because I think you're cool and we hung out the other week when you were in D.C. I'm saying this because I actually mean it. Your piece, which is called um, With All Due Respect to the Experts, I think that's what it's called. <laughs> yeah, something which I like just, that. Which I just, yeah, which I just reread um, today before this. And 
I think it's actually more relevant. It came out a couple of weeks ago. I think it's newly relevant today. It gets at what I think is one of the fundamental questions in our national debate. If we go beyond all the superficial bullshit, it's actually about how we assess the world around us. What is real? Mm -hmm. What is true? Right. What constitutes facts? What constitutes expertise? And what I like about your piece is that you you know you you take a you take a different. Let's say that you diverge from the experts on what expertise actually is, and you know it raises the question: Can you actually trust experts on what expertise is, considering that they have a vested interest in creating this category where they are the yeah. sort of secular priesthood? That they yeah, are the ones who have the it, yeah. information and the knowledge and the facts, and then it's up to us as mere mortals to listen to them. Of course, it's somewhat odd that I'm saying this, considering that I suppose I'm considered part of the expert class, at least on some things. And Demir is too. Right. In fact, he's being an expert right now in Albania <laughs> yeah. because he works uh -huh. on European issues and so forth. But maybe just to get us started, um, and we'll, of course, include a link to your article in the show notes. I really do mean this. You guys who are listening right now, you should you should read this in full. It's a, it's a little bit long, but not too long. It's excellent. But Oliver, do you just want to maybe tell us a little bit about why you felt it was important to write about this at this particular moment? Um, and maybe what the reaction has been as well, because a lot of this stuff seems intuitive to me, but a lot of people get angry when you point out that expertise is sometimes at least a fiction. It's an illusion. Yes. So, um, you know, I think in part it's been, it, it was a good moment to write about expertise because of um, all of the sort of mistakes that were made or mistakes or miscommunications or sometimes, you know, what you might call intentional miscommunications or noble lies or whatever uh, during the early days of COVID, um, you know, from the, from the WHO and uh, from Fauci and, uh, just in general. Uh, so I think COVID, COVID was a big moment um, for, for wondering about experts, but my life has been kind of punctuated by moments like that. And in a way, I think it's kind of always an apt moment to be wondering just how well are the technocrats doing? Just how well are we being governed by, you know, whatever, whatever relevant, you know, the NGO industrial complex or the administrative state or whatever group of experts you're, particularly concerned about, um, you know, I think to me, the Iraq war was a case of expert failure. The 2008 financial crash was a case of expert failure in a way, uh, you know, the failure to predict, uh, Trump being elected in 2016 was also a case of expert failure. Um, so I think it's just kind of every so often there are these kind of issues where, where the experts sort of, are doing just a horrible job um, at assessing what's actually going on around them. Um, and I actually got into writing about this sort of, like just writing in general, like doing political writing, going back to school to finish my philosophy degree and things like that. Um, I actually got into this stuff basically wondering about what makes institutions good in terms of um, how how different people's viewpoints kind of filter up to 
create, you know, like more robust, more reliable, uh, you know, what you might call knowledge producing mechanisms. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's a that's a bit of a mess of an answer. Um, no, no, that's that's but definitely great. definitely the the most this, recent hmm. event I think has been COVID. That's been that's been that's been relevant to expertise. Um, yeah, and and one thing maybe I'll just like introduce so just people get a taste of your argument. So I think it's a very good um, analogy to explore. So you do mention at the start of your piece a New Yorker cartoon, which as I suppose most New Yorker cartoons. Are, was a little bit smug and patronizing in that very kind of irritating liberal way. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but basically the cartoon said, I had a picture of people presumably on a plane. Um, these smug pilots, someone is, um, uh, uh, someone who's also presumably in coach and not in first class is saying, quote unquote, <laughs> These smug pilots have lost touch with regular passengers like us. Who thinks I should fly the plane? And then this is a way to basically poke fun and say, um, the the ordinary, um, presumably deplorable Trump supporter types right. who don't like experts, they want to they want to take the reins of the plane themselves and then presumably crash the plane and make a lot of people die. But what you say because they don't respect expertise. So they should, right. just as they respect the, you know, if you respect a pilot and you're not going to take take over for him or her, you should also not take over for, say, Fauci or whatever. And you say, um, and I'll just quote this, because this gets at something quite fundamental. You say, citizens in a democracy are not akin to airline passengers, buckled quietly into their seats and powerless to affect change. Okay, there's. <laughs> I miss. Okay. I misread it because it, it's a multiple clause sentence. <laughs> but then, <laughs> but then you, but then you go on to say um, that none of us thinks we know better than a plane's captain. Yet we often think we know better than experts in matters of politics. Suggest differences between those domains. So this is the mm-hmm. fundamental point. It's different to pilot a plane than it is to be a political scientist or an economist or a health expert. There are different ways to objectively assess whether someone's good at flying a plane because the results are clear. Either it crashes or it doesn't. Either you get them to the destination or you don't. Where in other domains of expertise, it is more subjective. Um, As you know, political scientists um, disagreed on whether the Iraq war was good or um, political scientists disagree on to what extent democracy is the best form of government or which different kinds of democracies are more appropriate, parliamentary systems versus presidential. These are not things that you can objectively assess as easily. Do you maybe want to tell us how should we as observers trying to make sense of this, how should we distinguish between different kinds of expertise and different kinds of domains? Yeah, so uh, a few things that I touched on in, in the article. So one of the one of the things uh, one one of the major kind of things that's talked about in philosophy with regard to expertise is what's called the novice expert problem. Basically, the novice expert problem is I don't know much about this domain. You're telling me that you know a lot about this domain, but kind of in order to assess that you know a lot directly, I would have to know a lot, right? I would have to be able to check your opinions against mine to see whether you're actually an expert. But as the novice, that's precisely what I can't do. 
right? So to get around that, we have all of these, we have all these apparatus, right? We have, we have accreditations, we have um, diplomas, you know, you pass your boards, you get licensed as a doctor, as a lawyer, as an accountant, right? Um, and that's how you know these people are experts. Um, and so we have to do certain things to, um, we have to have a kind of background trust in the system that these accrediting boards and universities and what, what the philosopher Alvin Goldman calls meta-experts um, are actually doing a good job. And I think that's that's part of the story that I didn't get into much here. But when I read um, someone like Aaron Sabarium writing about, oh, here's what's going on at the American uh, Medical Association. Here's what's going on at the American Bar Association. Um, here's what's going on in America's top colleges and universities, law schools, things like that. Um, and when I look at, you know, here are the people winning MacArthur Genius Grants, winning uh, other kinds of awards, you know, being kind of feted by the this meta-expert system. Um, you start to wonder whether the people who are being kind of accredited and pushed forward as experts are really the sorts of people you should trust, right? So you have to be kind of on the lookout for how this meta-expert system is actually producing experts um, and, and whether you think these sort of secondary features, right? The non-direct features, you can never directly know as a non-expert that somebody's an expert because you don't have the knowledge. So you have to think, how well are these people doing um, compared to some maybe objective criteria? Like, do the, you know, I'm in a United plane. How often do they crash, right? That'll tell me whether I should trust the pilots, right? Does United yeah. have a system in place? And you can think about what are the incentives that the pilot has? Uh, maybe they'll lose their job. Um, if you think about what happens if an academic publishes an article that turns out to be false, well, you know, nothing, you know, often... Or they'll be promoted. They're, they're, yeah, they'll be promoted in some way, right? Um, they'll kind of <laughs> fail upwards. Um, and so those are differences between domains. And I also think, you know, it's possible to be... It's important to be careful about this as well, right? Because often you'll have a situation of what seems like expert failure but you lack counterfactual knowledge, right? So you say, well, look look how bad COVID got because they didn't say this about masks and they didn't close up the borders soon enough and this and that. But to really, to like, to really know that they made a bad decision, you have to sort of game out what would have happened if they'd made this choice, what would have happened if they made that choice, and sort of what was the information available to them, what was the cost-benefit analysis available to them, Um so I do think that there are some cases where I think people are a little bit um, too quick to be distressful, um, and certainly many cases where I think people are um, far too quick to be trusting. But so Oliver, let me just push. I guess I think there's a lot going on in your article and even in, in our brief conversation so far. And it's it's I, I guess the thing that that bugs me about it is it doesn't bug me about your argument, but just want to sort of on on. Um, like pick it apart a little bit here mm -hmm. and it's 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 it, it's what you're calling this question of domains of you know there's a certain kind of technical expertise right. and then there's this other stuff which we call expertise but isn't you know i mean i i think i've mentioned this before maybe on the podcast but um i probably mentioned it to shoddy certainly not in the context of the podcast but it was when i was working at the american interest magazine uh before my my current think tank expert uh 
<laughs> existence. <laughs> we went to a, uh, a conference, a publishing conference. Um, and it was, you know, it was not early times of the internet, but basically it was while the sort of still print was a thing. And there was this whole sort of thing, how to, how to print magazines, make the jump to digital. And it was all talk about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a guy there, I'm trying to remember, I think he was the, maybe the CEO of LinkedIn, I think. And LinkedIn at that point, I think LinkedIn still does this to a certain extent, but it's not the world I inhabit. Um, they were cultivating to get people, you know, to write essays for LinkedIn, sort of opinion uh-huh. pieces, and to, you know, to, to write for it, to contribute to it. And I remember the, the guy said this to, you know, a group of sort of publishing people. He said, don't forget what you guys that do opinion journalism or opinion writing or analysis like, don't forget what sphere you're in. You like to think that you are in this kind of highfalutin, you know, uh, zone, but really you're entertainment. And what you're doing is you're competing for eyeballs with Netflix, with, uh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, any other, with television, with sports, with any other thing that, that is competing for people's attention. And understand that if you're going to run a, a magazine, a publication around this, understand that's the challenge and that's the sphere that you're operating in is, is entertainment. And he said, you know, think about like what the role of a David Brooks is. He said the role of an opinion journalist like David Brooks is to give people ideas that then they can sort of internalize, make their own, and then maybe, you know, either trot out at the water cooler or at the bar after work. Mm-hmm to be able to spark conversation with other people, maybe not even own as their own, but be like, oh, did you read the David Brooks column? And then like have an argument about it because they've thought about it or something like that. So there's a utilitarian aspect there that has nothing to do with outcomes, which I, I, it's always stuck in my head. That is, 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 I think it's properly contextualized to me, the entire sort of pundit world, you know, which Mm -hmm. styles itself in the realm of expertise and falls into this trap of airplanes and things like that. But it's even interesting in the way you were talking about it, you know, the failures of expert expertise. And this is, you know, the sort of a long way to get to this question, you know, said like the failure to predict Trump is a failure of expertise. One other like notable failure of expertise is like the failure to predict the end of communism. This is talked about a lot that the CIA failed Mm -hmm. to like see this coming. And, um, you know, to a certain extent, I almost think to myself, what is the purpose of the CIA uh, in a lot of in a lot of these sorts of spheres? It's it's not to to predict the future. It's to, I think, maybe scope out potential bad scenarios and help us plan around those in a hostile world. I think that's the role, the proper proper role of sort of, I don't know, intelligence expertise or analysis in that sort Mm -hmm. of sense. So getting it right that the Soviet Union collapsed at that point, I don't think is necessarily a failure because the point is to plan for the worst case scenario that the Soviet Union continues uh-huh. on for another 40 years, you know? And so in that sense, it's not a failure yet. There's that, there's that, that mistaken domain mistake that we make that a expertise is about predicting the future. So we judge it in whether they do it well. And so then you compare it to like planes falling out of the sky or not, but that seems like a, like a bad sort of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, connection comparison comparison and then there's the other part which is that like so much of our expert class in this credentialing stuff is built around this idea that 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 you know again what shadi was getting at it's like creating this priesthood of a certain sense and and imparting them a role that actually if you look at how they the role they play in society it's not that you know, like David Brooks is me, not there to actually give wisdom and predict the future right. give insight he's actually there to entertain us 
you know? No, right. no, I, mean, I, just, I just want to say, can I just complicate something right there? Because on. on David, on David Brooks, if I may. Sure. First of all, I think that there is a desire on the part of David Brooks and, and, and other opinion columnists to actually affect outcomes. So they do want people to potentially change their views on something and to act differently in their own lives. So, I mean, that's different than entertainment, even though it could potentially be entertaining in a, in a sort of positive way where you enjoy what you're reading and so forth. But also I think that opinion columnists like David Brooks, I mean, David Brooks does not um, is not claiming to be a subject matter expert in the way that an academic who has a very specialized field of study is claiming to be right. an expert. And that's why they're called opinion columnists because they're being upfront about the fact that they are presenting their opinion. I, I think it becomes quite different when you have credentialed academics who are known to specialize in a particular area. That seems to me to be a different category. Oliver, Does that make ahead. sense to me? It makes sense to me, but Oliver, just run with wherever, whatever you want from that and just sort of like pick it apart because I, I, yeah, I, I take so, your point shoddy, but go ahead, Oliver, please. Yeah, so, well, I, I don't know if that I was going to pick it apart. Um, you know, I think one thing you might say is if some of the people who are taken to be experts are actually just entertainers, then you might just say, okay, what I should have said is like, don't mistake them for experts, right? Um, and maybe part of their entertainment act is acting like experts, but remember that it's just an act. So that's one thing you could say. Um, yeah, but but I th I think Shadi is right that there's that pundits pundits are kind of one part of what's going on here. Um, and there was you know after the 2016 election there was this I think it was Michael Tracy or someone who had this idea to have what he called a pundit accountability project, mm -hmm. where it was basically um, like anybody who'd, who'd failed, you know, people just completely failed to understand what was going on in that election. You know, at one point, Ezra Klein wrote that uh, he thought, you know, Carly Fiorina had a decent chance to be the Republican nominee for president um, and things like that. But you might just think, okay, those are just pundits. They're not in the, they're not in the business of actually making predictions. They're just in the business of kind of getting eyeballs. And then, yeah, the answer to that would be don't make the mistake just understand that you're you're being entertained and that you're you're not um nothing deeper is going on. Regarding the the CIA, I think your argument there is is actually a good one. Um organizations do need to um spend their resources wisely, right? And when they think about um which options are we going to plan for, which eventualities are we gonna plan for, um of course, they're going to want to plan for the ones where, um, you know, planning will have the most upside and failing to plan will have the most downside, right? So it, often those will be the, the worst case scenarios. So I don't think of that as a failure to ex of expertise um, necessarily. And often you do see sometimes when, when it looks like an organization that has failed, sometimes you, you look into kind of what went on in the background and you say, okay, actually, this is all this is all completely reasonable, um, kind of within within the the resources that they had and the information that they had at the time. They actually made completely reasonable decisions, um, and that happens a lot when you when you kind of actually look deeply into stories of what looked like organizational failure. I think 
Um, so I do think, like I said before, I do think people are sometimes um, harder than they should be on institutions, harder than they should be on on experts um, in that way. But again, you know, I I think you know the the pundit accountability project or whatever Tracy was talking about. I, I I've heard that one knocking around. Again, even around that time that I was talking about being at that conference, I mean, I've had friends who say that, you know, like now we can, you know, it's databases have been democratized. We can actually track this stuff a lot better. Someone should sit down and, and take any prediction that any set of pundits has made, and that should disqualify them if they're like consistently wrong on this. And this gets to, to your point, Shadi, about, you know, about the intentions of these people. I mean, I think there's a there's a certain level of, I don't know if it's false consciousness, but a, like a... a a, a, a certain sense of self-importance among the pundit class that they actually serve a much higher and exalted role than they in fact right. do. You know, I mean, that's the only case I'd be making, not against contra David Brooks, quad David Brooks, but any any one in the class of pundits. In fact, any one of us, when we sit down and put pen to paper to put down our exalted thoughts for, you know, the people to consume, we think that we are, you know, moving the discussion and changing, you know, like right. even slightly on the margins, changing the 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 sort of the 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 direction of a lot of these things going we may be just completely just you know high on our own supply and like really proud of ourselves i mean there's that there's that great i think it was that that old columnist jack german said something like what was the line uh he said um writing uh an op-ed is like pissing yourself in a dark suit it feels great but nobody <laughs> notices right something like that and it, it's no. and it's it's, it's and, and I mean I don't know you know but I don't think just, I don't think either of those things are true about <laughs> pissing yourself. I know exactly. So that's, I, that's well. In any case, I, that's 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 why I just sort of brief. I think that that part of what's going on in the big expertise debate, and this doesn't get to the Fauci's and the rest of it. I think we should delve into that because I think there's a lot of really good stuff in the debate. But I, I do want to sort of try and at least tease out this this problem that we have, and I think part of what what drives this this cycle of distrust in the expert class is that there's a class of people who style themselves experts and have an exalted opinion of themselves. Their actual social role is not what they think it is. Right. Like, and, and they're wrong all the time. And so you get like this kind of weird feedback loop that people are reacting to their haughtiness, uh, notice that they're wrong all the time, and then don't trust them. And then there's this like feedback loop around nothing. Like basically, you know, there's a bunch of entertainers working in, in like like opinion magazines, which are basically just right. entertainment magazines. And then there's a whole subset of the public that's angry that these people take themselves very seriously and are self-important and they're wrong. And then it's like that's a whole little like subset, which doesn't touch on, the, I think, the the covid stuff and, and okay but yeah go on but, but Demir, i mean i think it's worth it's worth asking what does it mean to be quote unquote wrong i mean there so well okay so i think first of all i don't have a huge problem with people being wrong about the future that is not a domain that humans are meant to be good at assessing i i see that as the province of god basically that there are too many variables that you can't really isolate and you can't account for them. So that's why we're constantly surprised about the way the world unfolds, mm -hmm. even if we are so-called experts. I'm more concerned with assessing reality in the present. Mm. There are things that we can assess because they have happened or are currently happening. That seems to me to be where the problem is. I, 
no one should be. So I don't I don't care if someone gets an election right. There are legitimate reasons to have not thought that Trump would win in 2016. That's not actually some kind of like undermining thing that, oh my God, someone failed to predict whether Trump was elected. Knowing what we knew then, mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of good reason to think that Trump would win unless you had a particular kind of insight in a very, so for example, if you're someone, um, if you're someone who understood something about human nature, that Trump in a very effective and unusual way was Mm -hmm. speaking to something deep in the human heart. And you saw that where others couldn't, that's not really about expertise. That's about a certain kind of insight into the human condition. And even a sort of moral or immoral insight. And I, and I would just say, like, just speaking for myself, I, I operate generally in two modes. There is my mode of moral exhortation, which is not actually about me being an expert. It's that I have ideas mm-hmm. and I want to share them. They come from a particular moral. It's, it, that is about morality. That is about my starting assumptions. That is about my first principles. It's you being a that priest. Is not necess- Justin, use, use the language you used before about experts being elevated to priests. This is your priest mode. Go on. Yeah, but I don't claim. So I, I'm making arguments. I'm not claiming that I'm right in any absolute sense because mm. um, because it's not about being right or wrong. It's about it's about whether you share my first principles and premises about what is good mm-hmm. and right. Mm. If someone doesn't believe in God, they're not going to agree with some of my arguments because some of my arguments come from that place. So that is not an expertise question. On the other hand, if I'm writing about, say, the Muslim Brotherhood or Middle East politics or something about religion, and I've spent years studying that, and we can assess something about a particular group. We can look at a group like the Muslim Brotherhood, and we can establish basic facts on what the Muslim Brotherhood is. We -hmm. can maybe get to a consensus because some of it deals with morality. Do you like it? Do you like liberalism or do you like illiberalism or are you tolerant of illiberalism? Obviously, someone who's a very staunch um, classical liberal will not like a conservative, religiously oriented movement that wants to make Islamic law central in public life. So there's still a question of first principles, but there's also basic facts about what the Muslim Brotherhood actually is as a movement in the present and in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, go ahead, Oliver. If you have, if you jump in by by all means, I mean, uh, um, on any of yeah, the Chinese so stuff. There. I would say so. Here's what I would say. Um, I think I would say that I think of expertise as just the simplest way to think of expertise in a domain. And Demir, I think you're right to question the whole notion of domains and what domain is somebody actually operating in. Um, but uh, the simplest notion of expertise in a domain is just, there's a bunch of claims that might be made in the, in that domain. And the expert is the person who does the best at knowing which ones are true and false. Right. So the, the, the point where I was really pretty sure that I wanted to disagree was this notion you said in 2016, there were these people who not through their expertise, but through something else. They were able to, they knew something about human nature that helped them understand what was going on. Or they knew, you know, they had some common sense to help them understand what they were going on. 
I just think there's no reason to exclude those things from our conception of expertise, right? If, if it helps you get it right, then it's part of expertise. Um, but, so that's he, basically my view. But Oliver, he, you know, this is another thing. Uh, uh, Shadi and I, one of our close friends who's now actually running for, for parliament in, in France, uh, Ben Haddad, I remember he said this. He was, he was very clever about this. this was, I think he said like February or March after Trump was elected. He said, none of us predicted that this would happen. But all of us now have, like, are 100% sure that we know the exact reason why Trump got elected. And we can right. tell you 10 or 15 different great stories that are perfectly credible, believable, coherent, and, and even persuasive as to why it happened. The interesting thing, in the way you put it there, Shadi, about, like, you, maybe you had some kind of special insight into human nature that, like, got you, that made you write on Trump. But the interesting thing is, is that that maybe in fact it's not human nature that that like actually got Trump to win. That it's it's you know uh, like a complete uh, because it really was. It was a it was a confluence of of all sorts of contingencies and unrelated things that that led to a really unlikely thing for him right. to sneak through. And and despite like all the sort of obstacles, institutional obstacles to sneak through and make it, Trump himself didn't know he was going to win by many accounts, right? And so, right. and so, you know, that gets again at this question of expertise. It's not that certain people have a skill that allowed them to predict it. We all see how it happened now and we can all tell very good stories. And then we feel like we're expert. We can tell good stories about it. But there's it's all bullshit. Ultimately, you know, like people who got it right or didn't get it right. It doesn't fucking matter in, in some sort of way. I don't know. I, it's, that's my feeling on this like whole punditry game. I, I, I really... I feel like it's a deep fraud in a lot of ways. And, and I think we'd be healthier as a society if we acknowledged it and diminished it, like in our esteem in a big way and, 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 and just really desacralize the whole thing in a big way. I think we'd be just all happier. If not, like society would be better. But I know it's probably impossible, but just, again, throwing that out on the whole <laughs> Trump question. Yeah. So my friend, uh, Justin, uh, I always forget how to pronounce his last name, TN or Bieber. TN. <laughs> uh, yeah, Justin Bieber, my BFF. Um, he's a philosophy professor at the University of Puget Sound. Um, and I think even before the election, he started compiling this Twitter thread. This is one of the things that actually brought me to Twitter when I think I saw an article about this. Um, and it ended up with over a thousand items. And actually the Twitter, you can only have so many items in a thread. So I think he had to make a new thread. But it was basically a compendium of all of the things that people had said had caused Trump. Hmm. Um, and it was basically just a lot of people, as you were saying, right? It's not even just people being, oh, I'm so sure that I now know, even though I had no idea last week, right? It's a lot of people, and I was guilty of this too, a lot of people who had some, uh, you know, what's, what is the phrase that I'm looking for? Uh, a whipping post or some... You know, they had some thing. It was yeah. their thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's what they were into. And, you know, for somebody like me, it might have been social justice, identity politics, wokeness, feminism, free speech, right? For somebody else, it might have been, you know, something completely different. Um, and what he basically showed with this thread was this was an election that was, you know, decided so closely and the cause of the actual electoral victory, uh, it could be attributed to, to literally thousands of things, right? Oh. 
Um, and there was the whole, you know, this debate was never resolved. Everybody forgets that this debate debate kind of even happened. The the economic anxiety versus racial resentment debate. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I definitely think one response. So here's a bad response to expert failure. A bad response to expert failure is to say, well, the expert failed, so I'm just going to go with my gut, right? I'm going to go with my hunch and not really question it because I, I can't trust the experts. That, I think, is not going to do any better, right? Because the experts probably have better are better at that than you are. Um, the... <laughs> The better response is to do something, and I think this this relates to kind of some of the things Shadi's been writing and thinking about crime recently. Um, the better thing to do is to think, how do I how do I integrate a wider range of perspectives? How do I listen to a wider group of people and find a way to sort of think of everybody as being right about something, even if they're wrong about the big thing at the same time? Um, and that's not to say that you can always kind of do some sort of epistemic kumbaya or intellectual kumbaya where nobody's really wrong. Um, I think probably everybody's really wrong. But it's a question of how do you how do you find those people who have the empirical knowledge and how do you find those people who have this knowledge about human nature? How do you find the people who have some specific knowledge about something that maybe hasn't been empirically studied yet or might not be empirically tractable? And how do you kind of combine all these things together? Um, so that that to like me that. that is my approach. Yeah. So there's there's a, I, go ahead, Shadi. Go ahead. Well, well. <laughs> well, okay. Well, then I can. You know, I mean, it's interesting that you, you you're, you're mentioning that, Oliver, because I, I was reminded I had a, a friend who I think I forget where he works now. He used to be at in um, he was in China with with uh, Treasury Department. And really bright guy, um, and he he pointed me to this book I never read, but just having you sort of describe it just reminded me. Mm-hmm. Is a uh, I just googled it. It's called Super Forecasting: The Art and Science of Prediction by Philip yeah. Tetlock. Yeah, yeah, Philip Tetlock. Right, yep. and 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 he studies these people who are good at exactly what you're describing, right? Which is mm-hmm. which is having that kind of humility, finding expertise, and then being able to somehow uh, judge these things. And and these people aren't necessarily domain experts necessarily, but they're very good at, at somehow weighing and judging these sorts of things. Right. But that still gets to my, the question about, again, like, you know, what is the, the, the purpose of expertise? And maybe this, this can then get us into what's eating shoddy. And even what, what I think prompted you, you saying in writing this piece, which is, you know, there is a kind of domain expertise, uh, on things like, uh, let's say disease or crime. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, I think, fundamentally different is what Shadi is saying is describing the present rather than necessarily forecasting the future. Now, obviously a question of, of the pandemic, I guess uh, the lines get blurred there and it becomes a question of, you know, domain expertise describing the future and how that then leads to governance and like self-governance and decision-making and whether the being able to describe the present and analyze necessarily therefore means that those are the people that need to be making the decisions because that's also a different thing. It's not that we necessarily want to be governed by experts. We just want experts to be able to inform our governing decisions, right? Right. Okay. Well, here, here, 
let me let me try to expand let me try to bring a couple of things together and and i i hope i can express this in a somewhat appropriate fashion inappropriate um, <laughs> is what we're I, I feel like what we're really getting at here is that or maybe this is just what i think and i'm projecting it onto both of you i mean most debates <laughs> most debates aren't actually about facts most debates are about competing values. And this is where it gets, I think, somewhat confusing because we think we're debating reality. We think we're debating facts, but we're actu- what we're actually debating is different moral conceptions of the good. And we're basically, so, so for example, I mean, all of our debates about COVID were not really about what causes COVID. I do very much believe that medical professionals have much more insight into um, how infectious diseases operate and what actually, like, what's the incubation period? How do we measure that? Mm-hmm. Um, what are different viral mutations? These are all things that others, experts, can adjudicate if they are medical um, health professionals in the relevant field. But our debates about COVID were not about that. I don't really remember people debating is the incubation period five days or six days, or really, well, I was say, is COVID real? I think most reasonable people, even people who are anti-vax or anti-mask mandates, w- were willing to acknowledge that COVID was a real disease. Mm-hmm. The issue at hand was something completely different. It's about how a society should organize itself in a time of crisis right. and what things are worth prioritizing over others. Do you close down a society or an economy um, because of a virus or do you value, I mean, do you value, I mean, how much does economic growth matter versus other things? Mm-hmm. Um, there is, of course, a question of effectiveness about like whether mass mandates are actually effective Um, But then there's a bigger question of even if mask mandates are effective to some degree, whether they are worth the cost, because there are trade-offs that we have to take into account. How we want to live as a society. Do we Mm -hmm. want five-year-olds in elementary schools to live two years of their lives without seeing the facial expressions of their friends and classmates and their entire psychological makeup being affected because of that, these there is no right. I mean, I might think there's a right answer to that, but that's only because I come at it with different moral premises about what is good, not what is true. Right. So I, I do think that there's something to that, but at, at the same time, I'm not. So th- there's a bunch of people have written about this. You might be familiar. You know, Scott Alexander had this old post about mistake and conflict. Um, and, you know, I, I think Marxists worry about this too. I think a lot of people worry about what is the actual nature of political conflict, but it does seem to me that in some cases, at least, at least on the surface, political conflicts do sometimes seem to be about facts, right? So I think that the question of, is it consistent with our values that children won't see the faces of their classmates for X amount of time. One of the things that we might 
right? If we're trying to actually answer that question, is that consistent with our values? One thing we might try to do is figure out, well, what would the consequences of that be? How would it actually affect the children, right? And then you get into an empirical debate about developmental psychology. Um, and the empirical debate, I think, can be... One thing I've learned is empirical debates can be just as vicious as, as value debates. Um, and even non-empirical debates, you know, in philosophy, in the philosophy of mind, debates about the nature of consciousness are incredibly, uh, incredibly uh, harsh. Um, you know, people call each other, uh, you know, one philosopher called another uh, a, a Deepak Chopra light on Twitter recently. We're talking about, you know, oh very, God. very, very, very famous. Oh, my goodness. And, and Savage. Yeah, that's... Those yeah, are that's, fighting words right there. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I, I actually do think that not all political, not all political argument reduces to value conflict, in my opinion. Um because there are these there are these empirical issues that we have to resolve and that are that are quite difficult. If you know, if the I always forget who who was minimizing and who was maximizing COVID at what points. Um, but if COVID really had turned out to be just a flu in its original incarnation, then that would have been really important. And that was an empirical question, right? The empirical question about whether to lock down, right? There were all these empirical issues about how would how would it affect the economy, and would it lead to more suicides, more you know more damage to our institutions, um, things like that. And so I, I don't necessarily think right. Like if you assume answers to the empirical questions, and there does remain a value debate, but at the same by the same token, if you assume values, there can still remain an empirical debate. Um, so I, I tend to think that empirics and and kind of disputes over fact can can matter a lot in politics. And I genuinely think, you know, thinking about your crime stuff, right? Like when I talk to my very progressive friends, they really do believe they 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 really do believe there's no rise in crime, there's no crime problem. It's all some right wing narrative, right? Probably a racist narrative. And that, the question of whether there's actually a rise in crime seems like a straightforwardly empirical question to me. But the reason, but the reason that they don't treat it as such, the reason they, the reason they can't come to acknowledge that there is rising crime, even though the statistics are relatively clear, certainly in homicide rates um, as a subcategory, is is because of. Because of value, well, first of all, they have a tribal affiliation that right. if they emphasize crime, they are concerned, perhaps subconsciously or consciously, that it will benefit the other side, i.e. Republicans, and that is the greater evil. Or they believe that finding ways to not to not be supposedly racist, and for some reason, people think, some people, some liberals think that to even talk about crime openly is to somehow be racist when actually I would suggest it's the opposite since it's communities of color that are affected most by crime in major cities. But putting that all aside, they but there could also be like a bigger moral argument that um, criminals, drug addicts on the street, the chronically homeless and the mentally ill um, 
that these categories are inherent, that these people are inherently more deserving of empathy because they are marginalized. That is a value judgment. That is a way of looking at the human condition. That is not something that can be assessed by fact. So what's motivating them to look at the numbers in a particular way, because basically what they're doing um, is that, and I discuss this a bit in my piece, which will include include in the show notes, um, they're basically deciding which subcategories to emphasize. They're saying that overall crime has not gone up significantly. Right. And that's a way for them to get around the fundamental issue. But homicides have. And they're basically saying that that's not enough of a reason to be to be concerned about crime because the overall crime rates are still somehow comparable. They're using motivated reasoning because they want to mm-hmm. avoid the appearance of racism. They want their side to win and they hate Republicans. Right. Those are all, yeah. those, those are not really empirical issues, right? No, I, I definitely agree that empirical debates can result from people being irrational in ways that are caused by their tribal commitments, their moral commitments, their political commitments, right? Um, but there's still, the nature of the debate is still empirical, right? And it's still empirically resoluble. Um, and I, not that I'm so good at this, but I've managed to convince some people who were, who were really, you know, seemed to me to be tribally motivated reasoners of, of certain facts, right? That, you know, you kind of have to give them a way out, right? You have to give them a way of saying, here's a way that you can remain progressive and still think crime is going up, right? You have to give them a kind of escape hatch, um, but I don't think it's impossible to convince a, cr- a progressive that crime is going up. Um, you know, I saw one, I, I was talking on Twitter about expert failure in a different sense last night. Um, and people were asking for an example, and I happen to have this one at hand where um, this sociology professor, maybe it was in February, tweeted something like, uh, every time I tell my students that uh, white women benefit the most from affirmative action, their, their jaws drop. Um, and another sociologist basically answered like, but there's, there's no evidence that white women benefit the most from affirmative action. Um, and this was an interaction. It went more the way that you would probably expect because, you know, very tribal, very motivated reasoning. Um, but in principle, there's no reason an affirmative action proponent shouldn't be like, oh, okay. I understand. Actually, it's not white women who benefit the most from affirmative action. That was just a false fact that I that I knew, right? And if anything, that should make them more supportive of affirmative action, um, because that would be a, a kind of perverse uh, result of the policy. So I do think that people often arrive at their views through these kind of tribalistic or moralistic causes um, through their political affiliations. Um, but that doesn't mean, I don't think that necessarily means that they're sort of, uh, you know, set in stone or that they're they're unmovable objects, um, immovable objects with regards to these fees. That's it for the main episode. Become a paying member at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to access the rest of the conversation. We talk to Oliver about the role of moral authority and how experts succeed and fail to lead us. See you in the bonus.